Hello and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishakar Nadjani. I'm joined today by Professor Eleni Santim Zaleka, Assistant Professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University, to talk about her new book, Ethiopia in Theory, Revolution and Knowledge Production, 1964 to 2016, out now from Brill. How did you come to be working on this project? Um, gosh, Ethiopia in theory um, comes out of my PhD dissertation, which I did at um, the graduate program in social and political thought at York University. Um, when I started the project, I think I had a very simple question, which was how to think about the 2005 elections in Ethiopia. Uh, which were generally characterized as either um, elections that had been the ruling party at the time, which was the EPRDF, Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, was um, sort of cast as a kind of authoritarian or neo-patrimonial party, and then everybody else was seen as um, victims of that authoritarianism. And the language of um, authoritarianism versus, I guess, liberal democracy didn't seem quite right. It didn't seem to capture the dynamics of what was going on in that election. So I wanted to understand how to think about that election. And it seemed to me that political science as a discipline wasn't going to give me the tools to think about that election. And so um, I went to this graduate program in social and political thought in order to actually Think about African political thought. And I, I, and I said to myself, this election can't just be about primordial instincts of like authoritarianism and, and like bad people. There must be more to it than that. And so I wanted to discover um, the ways in which people thought about politics in Ethiopia um, and um, what was at stake in something like the elections of 2005 which was supposed to be these, uh, a groundbreaking election because, in fact, it was a free and fair election for the most part, um, although the results were highly contested. So I wanted to understand what was at stake in the fact that it was like this new opening in terms of free and fair elections, but why was, what was contested in, in the results. So that's basically how it began. Mm-hmm. And so with this project, you're looking very precisely at a couple of things at the same time. You're looking at the knowledge production of the student movement in, in Ethiopia, and you're also looking at the problem of knowledge production in the academy today, namely, as you put it, quote, the ongoing crisis in African studies regarding what constitutes decolonized knowledge production. Um, and so these two aspects are sometimes held apart in your book as separate things, and then at times are folding into each other. How did you manage to write both of those things together? Okay, so if we say, how do I think about the 2005 elections? How do I think about political crisis? What is authoritarianism? And I think, oh my gosh, political science doesn't give me the tools to actually think through this conundrum. Um, I have to think about political thought. Where is that political thought? And um, the political thought that I became interested in was the student movement um, of the 1960s and 70s, which shaped most of the political settlements in Ethiopia. Um, after 1974, when there was a revolution in 1974. Um, and in 1974, you have one side of the student movement sort of coming to power, and then this ruling party that I mentioned before, Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, being another side of the student movement. And so um, 
one thing I wanted to do is just be like, what is the ideas that informed the different political settlements that had happened in Ethiopia uh, from 1974 until 2005? Um, yeah, what were the ideas? So the first thing I did in order to think about those 2005 elections was to go back to the student journals um, that were produced by the student movement of the 1960s and 70s and to ask what, what were they writing? What were the ideas that animated them? And you know, I guess surprisingly in a way, or not surprisingly, um, I found a very dynamic student movement that was engaged with um, discourses coming out of student movements all over the world at that time, interested in decolonial thought, um, but also really saw itself as modernizers in the Ethiopian context. Um, and that they, thought they, they saw themselves having a special kind of knowledge because they were students. Um, and part of a, a modern education system um, that most Ethiopians didn't have access to at that time. So I was just like, well, it's interesting because they there's a critique of the Ethiopian state at the time by these students, and yet they are still committed to understanding themselves as modern, scientific, um, and, 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 and in some sense as a vanguard. So I was interested in the form of their knowledge production as much as the content. And I thought the form of their knowledge production was as much part of the political settlement that had happened in Ethiopia um, after 1974 as much as the content was part of the political set settlement, right? So I was like, that's so interesting to me. And why hasn't anybody thought about that, right? The ways in which um, the form of thought is important as well as the content. Um, and then it became interesting to me to, 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 to then think about the Ethiopian student movement and its claim to scientific sort of um, rationality and, and so on. Um, as It became a, a case study to then think about, well, what is, what is knowledge production in Africa, right? And, and, and given that you have this group of people that are committed to a certain kind of social science knowledge production or science, um, you know, in fact, um, how can we think about what they're doing um, in relation to these broader questions around decolonization? So I think part of what I realized when thinking about the Ethiopian student movement, I could simply say that these people had been, um, that they were Eurocentric, right? That they, were, they had found Marxism, they had found um, a kind of left discourse, and they had become committed to this like left Marxist Eurocentric discourse, but that seemed trite to me as a as a way of trying to understand what they were doing, um, and it felt um, very dismissive. So I became interested in if we're gonna. So one one thing that occurred to me is if I want to think about knowledge production um, in Africa, we can't do it at the level of broad abstractions, right? Um, what is happening with the student movement in Ethiopia is very particular. It has to do with a set of questions, um, political and social questions that come out of that region. And so what it means to decolonize knowledge production also has to be particular to that region. It can't just be like, let's let's like abandon Marxism or let's abandon Eurocentric tenets. Like there's something that that student movement is actually struggling with that is very particular to its context. And that, and, and to understand the context, what, becomes much more interesting. So what I wanted to do is understand that social setting that they're attempting to address, how that social setting then poses a set of questions to them, how they formulate questions in relation to that social setting, and then how they go to Marxism 
um, not as something that is derivative, in fact. They go to Marxism and they transform Marxism and they make Marxism speak to their particular context, right? Um, and that seemed much more interesting in terms of thinking about uh, what decolonial knowledge can actually be because what we're seeing is that these students are actually quite creative in how they're relating to ideas and how they're relating to theory. Um, and I'm not sure they got everything right. In fact, they might have got many things wrong. But the fact that there's a certain um, activity of, of creativity here and a back and forth between um, what these students are finding on various campuses in the world and how, they're, uh, how they make sense of their own particular situation given what they find on those campuses is, is interesting and fascinating to me. Right. So, and then, and then I became, I guess, you know, the, the layer, there's layers in my book. So then I was like, okay, that's an example for me in a way, right? That became a, a model. And so I saw myself as creatively engaging both the student movement, Western political thought, um, you know, histories of Ethiopia, histories of Africa. Um, and I positioned myself as somebody who's haunted by the Ethiopian student movement and the ideas that they produce. And I very much see myself as um, writing at, in, in terms of somebody who is, um, you know, the ideas of the student movement live in me in many ways, right? They're, they're ghosts that haunt me and possess me. And, 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 and I have an obligation to engage that past, not necessarily because it's a moralistic or normative kind of obligation, but simply because I'm haunted by these ideas. Um, and, and, that, but I'm, I'm haunted in a way where I can engage those ideas in a creative fashion, um, not, not in some kind of deterministic manner. Yeah. And you know, very explicitly and precisely the, the ways in which you meet and bump up against the questions that you're talking about. So for example, you note that you came up against very similar crossroads intellectually to the students that you're writing about. You write, quote, I faced the same sense of lack that the students themselves must have faced when producing knowledge about Ethiopia for the sake of social transformation. What is particular for you then about how they're producing knowledge for the purpose of social transformation? And you, you I think quite compellingly sort of wrote out of around that problem, but it seems like it's, you know, it remains a problem at the end of the book. Could, could you talk more about right. that problem? Sure, sure. So, so there's a sense of lack. I have a sense of lack coming to the book. Um, and the lack is on a number of different levels. So I think that the questions that the student movement is asking, which I think, let me just, let me enumerate what I think those questions are. Um, right? So you have in um, the 1960s in Ethiopia, a country that is nominally independent, um, hasn't been colonized, and yet I still think the struggle for Africa has shaped everything about the political economy and the politics of the place. And so there's a question of what does, what does it mean to be a nation state in Ethiopia? What does it mean to bring very, very different language groups that might not necessarily understand themselves as connected to each other? What does it mean to bring them under a singular political authority? What does it mean to um, for for local traders who have their own sort of ways of interacting with the region? How to how to bring those local traders into a political authority again? That isn't just about um, you know 
following the kinds of trade routes they might have followed in the past, right? Um, so, you know, the, the, the conundrums of, of sort of forging um, a political collectivity in this region um, that where, where people don't necessarily see themselves as belonging to the same entity, right? Um, and so the student movement understands that th this has been a project since the scramble of, for Africa, an unsuccessful project in many ways, but a, a project that is that they're compelled to take part in because of the ways in which sovereignty can only be expressed as, as a nation state at this particular moment, right? Haile Selassie is, you know, in power, many people know who Haile Selassie is, maybe they don't, but Haile Selassie is a king, he's associated with Christianity, Coptic Christianity, which supposedly has been part of the state in Ethiopia since the fourth century, etc., etc. There's a story that people tell in any case about the state and Christianity. Um, and the students are, are rebelling against Haile Selassie and that kind of narrative around what the state is in Ethiopia. And they're trying to find different ways to think about how to bring these language groups together, how to think about trade, how to think about capitalism um, in the region. Um, and I think, again, they're really struggling with how to find concepts to, to speak to, to that, um, those sets of questions. And, and for me, what is the lack that I'm facing? I'm facing la the lack because they didn't, I don't think they answered those questions necessarily successfully either. Hence, we still have the same political problems in Ethiopia today. In fact, we have a civil war that just broke out last week in Ethiopia, largely around some of these issues and the ways in which um, these political settlements have not solved these issues. Um, and then, so there's a lack in terms of, I inherited the same questions that, that the student movement attempted to address. But there's a lack because, again, as I said before, political science doesn't know how to answer these questions, right? They want to talk about Africa in very normative terms around achieving things like, you know, the right, I don't know, institutions that represent liberal democracy. Um, and I, I would say in particular, as, as an Ethiopian woman, as a black woman, I, I didn't find graduate studies or even my undergrad a place where people were interested in exploring my experience. So my experience of these political questions or the experience of the revolution as, as, a, as a place to generate concepts, right? Um, so there's a lack of, um, in that sense, right? How do I even come up with concepts um, to think about my relationship to the student movement, my relationship to the political questions that still haunt me that were first posed by the student movement. Yeah. And so part of your entry point into this question, you know, writing around the lack, writing through it, is really in your focus on the method of scientific socialism that is elaborated by the student movement, and in particular how this method sort of bridges the gap, if you'd like, between theorizing revolution and enacting it and participating in it. Right. What is it about that method that helped you see the relationship between theorizing revolution and enacting it? Because that seems like a big part of what's at stake here. There is some kind of notion of science being able to solve problems in Ethiopia and that what revolution is, is actually coming up with the right kinds of formulations. Um, and that, that and that you organize society around um, around scientific formulations that you can deduce from theory, 
right? And so, um, what 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 revolution ends up becoming, I think, in Ethiopia is a social engineering project, right? Rather than um, an attempt to, I guess, engage with consciousness and and to to pose philosophical questions about reality and to open up a, a space for people to experience um, those philosophical questions as their own and to then act on them, right? Um, so I think that revolution in some ways becomes um, something, a set of formulations that can manipulate populations, right? Um, and I, I guess that's, that's my problem with it. And yet, even as I say that, and that's the form, that's the form that I'm interested in. And, the, and I, So I don't want to re- reproduce that form. I don't want to come up with a set of formulations about what is the right way to do revolution. So part of the, the task of my book is to, to engage the students and engage the questions and to, to critique them imminently, to open up um, philosophical questions about what they were doing. Um, rather than to say they were wrong, rather than to say, you know, to take a more moralizing position, right? And that's a very difficult thing, because I think it's really easy to say, oh, these people had a revolution, what, what, are, what were they even up to? Um, you know, there was all this violence. Um, part of me, part of even dealing with the question of violence for me is I'm writing around violence all the time. There's a lot of social violence that's a result of this revolution. But I don't talk about that, that social violence directly. What I, I become interested in is a kind of, again, the form, the content um, of, of these students and, and how um, that becomes problematic. And, and again, for me, trying to develop a method so that I don't reproduce the same kinds of um, patterns that where I just chastise them and where, where thought itself becomes... Um, a, t- um, a tool. Not as, I, I'm not against thought being politicized, but I, I, I think there's something about um, thought that has to be about opening up questions um, rather than simply um, beating people down with formulations. And so I, w- one of the ways that you really clearly lay out the relationship between those two things, thought as political, politicized, but also um, form and method as something to be taken seriously is, is your the, the way that you take up the critical theory of Marx and the Frankfurt School against what you call, quote, the traditions of empiricism and positivism usually associated with mainstream social science practices. So how did that allow you to then arrive at the knowledge problem that you were after if, you know, to, to be crude about it for a moment, thought and practice are the two things that are floating in front of us. Right, right. If we think about the ways in which thought is being developed um, within the student journals um, in Ethiopia, it's very much a kind of, um, you know, idea that there is some kind of reality out there, it can be discovered, we can move towards more perfect um perfect types of knowledge um, and that each generation of scientific practitioners is, is contributing to the creation of more um, perfect knowledge um, and I suppose what I was interested in is not what 
you know, truth and, and, and faults, but um, thought as something that is um, a social practice as well, um, that's embodied, that um, isn't just out there, um, and I, you know, uh, or truth isn't just out there, but truth is something that we constitute with each other um, through a set of relationships, um, and that, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not some hardcore relativist or something, that's not what I'm saying here, but I, you know, there's a large, uh, a class of beliefs or whatever that don't really submit to, you know, truth and false in, in, in that simplistic way, right? So that there's, you know, these other types of truths that we, that we sort of make together. Um, and that, I guess my sense is that if we re, if we take Marx seriously in, I guess, um, the thesis on Feuerbach, or if we take Marx seriously in terms of um, what he's saying in, you know, the economic philosophical manuscripts, he has a... a um, a critique of positivism that I don't think the student movement in Ethiopia is taking seriously at all, right? They're like, no, Marx, Marxism gives us trans-historical truths, right? Truths that last forever. And I'm just like, well, that's not really a thing that, that Marx is interested in because truth is always changing um, because the, our, our relationships are always changing, right? Um, so... So I was interested in, in actually engaging the student movement as Marxist and saying, well, you kind of misunderstood Marx, too. And if I read you imminently and I even think about the kinds of claims you're making about Marxism, I can use Marxism to critique the very thing that you're that you're doing in some ways. Um, and the other thing that I think I was really interested in, you know, when I read the first time I read Marx, um, in my PhD program, you know, I'd done a master's and I read a bunch of like post-structuralist uh, theory, and I was just like, "Yo, like, what are they even talking about? Where's my body? Where's my body in all of this?" <laughs> um, and I think reading Marx helped me to really think about my body, not not in terms of like a discrete entity. Here is like Santine, um, you know, with her body but actually to think about the body as a set of bonds with other people and a set of like relationships with other people. Um, and, and that those bonds and those relationships are, are dynamic or dialectical, if we want to say. And, and if we can trace out those, those relationships, then there's something much more interesting about how we make knowledge together rather than thinking about knowledge as a set of formulations that are outside of us that um, we could discover. And so with, with that, actually, I, I wanted to turn to the relationship between the story that you've been telling about the process of social transformation in Ethiopia um, to the second part of your book um, in which you're writing that what is holding your history of social transformation in Ethiopia together with the theoretical um the, the theoretical sort of journey that you take us on in the in the second half, you're writing that what holds them together is precisely that, is precisely the body, right? So you write that the situated knowledge of an alternative social science practice is rooted, as you just said, in an understanding of the body as the site of the sedimentation of multiple social and political histories. And so I wanted to ask you more about that sedimentation because you do disaggregate those those layers uh, for us as you go through the book. So if, if what's also at the center is as you've 
said the haunting and the experience of all of this how as a writer are you able to peel back those layers while retaining the integrity of what you're starting with which is your own experience your own body I don't know. It was a very difficult book to write. I can tell you that. Um, but, you know, I am from Toronto, and I had the gift of um, a home with an attic at the top of that home, and I got to spend a lot of time in that attic by myself thinking about these questions. And I, I, I've said that elsewhere. I, I, I think that there's something about doing a PhD. I know this is a bit of an aside, but there's something about doing a, a PhD in Canada at a public university where I didn't feel the pressure to like produce. Like there wasn't some kind of like commodity that I needed to like deliver after like five years, which I think a lot of graduate students really do experience in other kinds of contexts, right? So I, I really had time on my hands to think about this um, and to, to really trace the sedimentations of history that um, constituted my body. Um, I think one of the things that I do in the book is that I I talk about a novel um, written by Dino Mengistu, um, who is an Ethiopian um, writer who lives in the States now, and the book is um, How to Read the Air. And I actually really thought that that title was um, compelling because Walter Benjamin in Thesis of the Philosophy of History says that we, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, everything we know is, is, is from the air that we have breathed, that, that we don't know things from, from the future. We only know things from the past, right? Um, how do you read the air? And Dion Magistu does this really interesting thing in his book is that the book is about journeys, right? Multiple journeys that he keeps on taking. It's the journey of his parents. It's the journey, his own journey. Um, it's the journey of um, just like the Ethiopian revolution in many ways and the experience of loss. And, and the book is interesting because he doesn't try to vanquish loss. He just keeps on going on these journeys and trying to understand how, he, how, how the present came to be. Um, and so it's the shape, perhaps it's even the shape of loss that he's tracing. And, he, and it's like these multiple journeys. And, and who knows if any of these journeys are true in any sense. But it's the act of, of, of going on the journey that's important and, and constantly telling the story of, of, of the present, right? Um, and, and it's a little bit like, I suppose, psychoanalysis. I mean, you go to your therapist and you just keep on telling stories. And at some point, you develop a different relationship to the past just because you've developed all these, you, you've told all of these stories. And I think, I think my, my book is a little bit like that. It's like multiple stories um, that seem necessary. So there's a story of the social sciences, the story of knowledge production, the story of the students, the story of my body, the story of, you know, what it means to produce knowledge in, in this day and age as, as a, you know, practitioner here in the West. Um, and all of those stories, like, seem to, to, to be sediments of, of my present, Right. And um, that becomes the method in many ways um, to, to arrive at some tentative conclusions about what my present means. But they're tentative, right? <laughs> yeah. Part of your method, too, is, as you write about, is um, other people's stories, right? Not many people who uh, write about the history of ideas can say that they've done extensive field work, for example. What, what role did that play, then, in, in this constellation that you've laid out? The book um, 
does a lot of conjuring and the, and the field work is interesting for me in that book. I went to Ethiopia um, with the intention of actually interviewing a lot of people um, who had participated in the student movement. Um, and I, I met with most of those people and I had lots of, you know, I drank a lot of tea and I had a lot of conversations and, and collected sort of a lot of, a lot of anecdotal information. Um, in the end, I think that those conversations helped um, clue me into a method that I needed to develop, the method that I just uh, described for you, rather than using that those interviews to prove something about um, the student movement and to say, well, this person said that, and this is the truth about the student movement. I was like, well, no, actually, that's not what I'm doing. Um, so it, it gave me a, a sense of um, the feeling of what these ideas were all about and what was at stake in them. I talk a lot about the structure of feeling, um, and and I think doing those interviews was about understanding um, that affect, I suppose, right? Um, and it, it allowed me to. So when I did go to like the Institute of Ethiopian Studies and I started to read the literature produced by the student movement, I think having done having had those conversations allowed me to read those journals in a, in a different way, um, to read, read them for form, to read them for sentiment, to read them for affect, as much as I was reading them for truth about the ideas that they were um, producing. Yeah. So I would say that the fieldwork is really important for that. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and, I, and, you know, I feel like people didn't want me to to interview them and say, this is what so-and-so said about the student movement. Like they were, people were, were not into it actually. And they, they, they were constantly, so they would give me informal interviews, but when I tried to do formal interviews, I felt, felt like I was chasing people. And I was like, why am I chasing these people? They're not into it. Like I just need to like, I need to find a different method. So that kind of, um, you know, the ways in which people were responding to my need to question them and to discover truth about them you know, the fact that they were pushing back against that forced me to, to develop the method that I did develop in the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. And this really textured narrative, if you like, but, you know, not quite narrative that you lay out in the book um, really leads to some very interesting sort of theoretical uh, drilling down that you're doing in, in, in the second half. So, and, and there are a number of, you know, foundational texts of um, post-colonial, decolonial theory and, and history that you're dealing with. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask first about your, your discussion of uh, Mamdani's citizen and subject. So you arrive at the space then after this discussion of what you call an apolitical politics as a field carved out by social science in the wake of capitalist social relations in Europe, early social scientist elaboration of so-called civil society and the specificity of that concept as a social phenomenon uh, to the necessary conditions for social science to even exist. And so you've laid that sort of intellectual history out for us. And then you're taking up something that changes, something that shifts because of Ethiopian politics in this period. Could you talk us through what changes when Mamdani's problem of the universal and the particular forms of rule and experience are taken into account here because that seems like um, a really important fulcrum for what you 
lay out right. about the kind of aftermath of social science in, in Ethiopia and in Africa? Sure. You are just asking complicated questions, huh? What do you think here today? <laughs> Your book um, compels that kind of thing, let me just say. Sure, sure, sure. Many layers to this book. Okay, so what does Mamdani do? Mamdani says there's a problem of knowledge production in in African studies, right? And it is unable to articulate an African experience. And um, one of the, the reasons why he says that is because for him, the social sciences are just asking all the wrong questions um, because they don't even under, they don't even have a sense of what an African experience might be. And so he tries to develop a notion of an African experience, and he does that through um, talking about the African state. Um, and he says that um, sort of the African state is torn into is torn by two sort of binaries. Um, either it falls back into a kind of decentralized um, despotism uh, where it in, where, where power and authority is vested in, in the customary, right? In the local, um, in the native, um, or African, um, the African state and African power is vested in a modernizing, centralizing state um, that rejects the local um, and um, he, he's like, that, that, that basically is the binary through which all of African social science happens, right? And partially, um, it does this because civil society is un under-theorized in terms of what it is in, in Africa, and for him, civil society is this despotic sort of um, concept, which, which is where whiteness exists in Africa, basically. It's the urban, right? It's where the, the colonial officials um, live. And from, from that despotic whiteness, you have um, indirect rule, which rules over the customary, it rules over um, the native, right? Or in the name of the native, or in, and in the name of the customary. Um, and basically, in theoretical terms, um, Mamdani says his work basically um, is able to describe this problem, and in a sense, overcome this binary that both is at the heart of the ways in which African politics happens, but also at the heart of how um, African societies get described and the ways in which African sort of knowledge production, knowledge production about Africa happens, right? Um, and I take that seriously as well. And I think that that is the problem um, that exists um, in terms of how um, knowledge production is produced in in Africa, and and we can see this today in Ethiopia, where we've had um, a kind of ethnic federalism that was interested in the local, um, and I, su I suppose the native, um, as opposed to what existed prior to the 1991 political settlement, which was much more of a centralizing, um, you know, state, mo centralizing, modernizing state, right? Um, and so we have that, that constant flip-flop. And so I think my work is, you know, takes, takes Mamdani seriously. Although, um, I also say that Mamdani is, is also always thinking about this at a, at a kind of, um, I, you know, you know, at an abstract level. 
um, that there is a political economy to this as well. And that political economy has to do with how do you integrate, again, different language groups and so on, different ethnic groups into, um, um, into a, a political authority that has sovereignty and is recognized by, you know, other modern international states, right? Um, or you know, by, the, by the international system. Um, so I, so what I'm, what, what I, what I, what I'm describing problems in Ethiopia, I'm trying to always get outside of those binaries. Um, one by, um, taking seriously what Mandani described, but also taking seriously the political economy that produces that binary as well. Um, and I, I, I take, I take up a lot of post-colonial theory because it tends to celebrate difference and, and perhaps um, the customary. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the things that we need to do take more seriously is the history of capitalism in, in Africa, which doesn't look like the history of capitalism in other parts of the world. And I make the argument that part of what Mandani misses is that capitalism actually reproduces itself through difference and through the customary um, in Africa. Um, and so it, it actually doesn't have that homogenizing tendency that we tend to associate with capitalism. Capitalism is supposed to make everything look the same. In fact, it, what I argue is that it relies on difference in order to reproduce itself in many, in many countries. And that's perhaps why that dichotomy that Mandan identifies as central to the African state and African experience cannot be resolved so easily. Um, so I, I, I take up Mamdani, I take up, you know, Dipesh Chakrabarti and, and that turn within post-colonial thought that tends to separate, that tends to celebrate difference. And I'm like, well, actually difference is a site through which capitalism reproduces itself. Um, and so part of what I do in that second part of the book is to restage a lot of the questions that the student movement had asked. And I talk, I talk about the second half of the book or that it's just like one chapter actually as theory as memoir, right? So if I've inherited all these questions from the student movement, how do I rethink those questions today through, through engaging post-colonial theory, through engaging um, Mamdani and, um, you know, and, and the kind of the thinkers that have tried to grapple with the questions um, that the book faces. And on that question of the place of political economy, if we turn then to what Marxist theory has to do with all of this and the way that you treat it, it seemed, it seemed to me after reading your book that, you know, if we zoom out to the people you're talking with and interpreting then the operative relationship in much of Marxist theory, even when it's overdetermined on the one hand or much too circumscribed the way that you described, the relationship is really between a diagnosis and accompanied mapping of social problems as they relate to historical changes and modes of production and social relations. And then on the other hand, the cultivation and prescription of ways to break those bonds and to put it simply get free. So what sorts of freedom then become legible after your rearrangement of all of these interconnected but held apart things. You know, you've got post-colonial historiography, critical theory, political economy. What what can we read then out of the freedom question? Because it, it seems like uh, that's really what you what you leave us with to to think through. Right. The freedom question indeed. So 
what what I think the book is doing is that there's a provocation in the book around um, the fact that something like the Ethiopian student movement has something to teach in Marxism in general. Like, you know, a poor country like Ethiopia, which is supposed to be, you know, marginal to, I guess, Marxist theory, might actually have something to teach us. Um, one of the things that I suppose I'm saying is that that if we think of revolution simply as a linear project um, and that we're all marching towards um, to along the road of progress um, and we'll, we'll miss um, so much of what it, what is the potential for revolutionary activity um, and that that the the there you know the the I guess the proletariat that we um, understand as, as those who are capable of revolution, if we think of them as this in very stereotypical ways as, as those who are capable of revolution, then there's a way in which we'll, we'll never think that a place like Ethiopia has anything to teach us. Um, but again, that would be to treat um, Marxist theory as a set of formulations. Um, and, and I suppose what I'm suggesting is that the types of the, the ways in which the Ethiopian movement related to thought as a set of formulations tells us something about the futility of trying to do revolution as a set of formulations, right? Um, but it also teaches us something about the fact that there is creativity um, amongst um, you know various peoples in the global south, and they that they have transformed Marxism into something that belongs to people in the global south as well, right? Um, and the question, I guess the question of freedom is that we, we that it's an, unex, I guess it's unexpected. It's not a, for, it's not a, it's not something that we arrive at through formulation, right? Um, and, and in that sense, what is important is to it always, engage with critique of the present um, and to be open to the ways in which the past haunts us, not um, in terms of a linear project, but as always, um, I guess, shocking us into opening up to, to new types of questions and new types of experiences. And I, and I think the book is trying to show how the Ethiopian um, experience of Marxism is, is an interesting experiment in all of that, even if it, in some ways, is also a failure, right? And, you know, as you put it, thinking about how the Ethiopian student movement can teach us something about Marxism, you know, the question of how we might teach your book now that it exists is also something I'm, I'm thinking about especially because it sort of bridges these genres. Were you thinking or, or are you thinking about how we might teach your book or how your own pedagogical practice played a role in how you wrote it? Because so much of what's in the book is really about translating ideas and practices and what it means to be a student. It seems like that's also something that we can think about as people who teach. Right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there is a proposition about what it means to be a student in that book and, and what it means to learn. And, and I think that there is a sense of um, how to engage with critique in a deep way and, 
and in an imminent way and and in a non-dogmatic way um and and how to listen to the past um so i think that the book is 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 an important intervention on that level i think it's an important intervention for african studies because i think african studies actually has not yet learned how to listen to africans as producers of political thought um I think that there's, I mean, there's multiple ways to use the book. There's, and different chapters in the book do very different things. So I think you can take many of the chapters on their own terms, right? I mean, there's a chapter that's just about sort of social sciences in Ethiopia um, and how it deals with the question of revolution. I think that's a really useful chapter um, to, to, to engage in. And, and I, I know other people who've taught that chapter already, and it's, I think it opens up really interesting questions for people. I think my engagement with post-colonial thought and the question of what is the object of African studies and why um, it can't, why it hasn't been able to think the Ethiopian revolution is also super interesting. Um, I think I'm one of the few people who, yeah, I'm not sure there's a lot of like African women political philosophers out there. Um, And like you said, I really do drill down and think about what is the, what has, what is it meant to, to do post-colonial theory in Africa. Um, and I, I think I do, an, you know, offer some answers to that um, in a really detailed way. And I, and I think one of the things that my book does is it makes a lot of interesting South-South connections. Um, and so I'm not just thinking about how to solve the African problem by looking at African authors. I mean, I, I engage with subaltern studies and um, a lot of South Asian writers for that matter in order to think about, you know, the question of post-colonial thought in Africa. So I think the book is really useful in terms of um, thinking about um, political thought in the global south um, more generally. So I think that's all the ways in which the book can be taught and might be useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to, you you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning when you talked about the the lack that both the student movement felt and, and you feel intellectually, but could, could you just speak to what it, the, the experience of working with this doubled thing? Because I think that many graduate students are trying to responsibly do those things at the same time. And I, I for one was really curious about as a writing problem, what that felt like and what that was like for you. I'm not sure which, which double thing exactly. Well, the double thing of writing about something that both describes and enacts, but you're writing about people who are doing that while you're doing it, because it's so, a descriptive work and a theoretical work at the same time. Right, I'm describing people who are producing knowledge, and I'm theorizing the ways in which they... they... Yeah, I, mean, I always find it weird when people write about um, like histories of ideas, and they never question the ways in which they write about the history of ideas ideas and I'm just like well no but how can you and, and that's the question of form right like you can't just talk about content right the ideas matter because of form not just because of content so I, I was just like it would be really ironic and contradictory of me to not think about my own form <laughs> and so um so I really grappled with that in, in this book um and so in in a sense the book is um, about revolution, but it's also about like how 
the method to talk about revolution, and maybe it is its own revolution in method. I don't know. <laughs> that might be like, to, you know, tooting my horn too much. But um, yeah, there's certainly an attempt to struggle with with form and writing in the book. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a poetics to the book as much as as there is an attempt to to just describe something as well. Before we go, I wanted to ask you one last thing, which is about a sort of cautionary thing you you throw out at the very beginning, um, which I think for m- many people concerned with the ideas and practice of revolution, of Marxism, of politics in the global South, it remains a methodological question. So you write that while you are avoiding positivism in its sort of classic sense, you're also cautious of, quote, an endless play of meaning. Uh, And the reason you're cautious of that is because there's, quote, too much at stake. Um, I'd love to maybe end with uh, hearing about how you walked that line. Sure. I mean, I think earlier I said I'm not, like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a relativist or, like, I'm not interested in just saying everything, all meanings are, are, are possible and interesting. Um, so I guess what I mean by that is that when I talk about the history of ideas in Ethiopia, I want to connect those ideas to um, social processes. I'm always talking about um, the, and, and in fact, in, in some, some ways, um, the, the concepts and ideas of the student movement, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to trace them back to the social contradictions in which that they're trying to address, right? So the, the ideas are never disembodied. Um, and, and this is why I think it's necessary, it was necessary for me to talk about my body and to talk about embodiment. So there, I never critique the ideas from a place of um, an a- abstract knowing, right? And, and, and I suppose part of what I, part of the argument is, of the book is that, you know, there is no place outside from which we can make, we can launch critique. We're always inside of something. Um, and so what makes um, a project of critique interesting is to, to simultaneously do the, to mount the critique, but to, to engage in critiquing yourself as you mount that critique. And I, and I, I really try to, to, to do that. And I, and I do that by constantly situating myself, right? And so the argument of the book is that critique can only be launched from a place of embodiment and a, and a, a place of situatedness. It can't, critique can never come from outside. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important part of the book, actually.